Are you in the deep end or are you in the shallow end? Are you feeding from a bottle or are you chewing on meat? Those uh, questions are very important for anyone in here who says that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you in the deep end? Are you maturing? They're in the deep end. Are you maturing in your faith? Are you growing in your walk with the Lord? Are you in the shallow end and content with being in the shallow end? That's really something to consider. Uh, It's probably not a pleasant question to receive because it demands analyzing one's life. Um, Are you feeding on the bottle or are you chewing on meat? Um, I fear there are a lot of Christians in our culture, church culture, that are feeding on bottles, that aren't chewing on meat, that couldn't really defend their faith if they were asked to. I know that sounds harsh, but I believe it to be true. I believe one of the dangers that the church is falling into today is sheer ignorance of God's Word. So the question that has been posed for years, what does the Lord say, is really not something that our culture even wants to consider, much less the church. I think the church can improve in that area. When it comes to spiritual growth, what does God want for his children? Does he care about our lives, about that sanctifying process? And the answer to that question is yes, he does care. He does care that we grow. He does care that we do not become stagnant in our growth. And that's why you come to 2 Peter, the first chapter, Peter focuses in on this aspect of spiritual growth. I mean, he has an audience that he's about to address in chapter 2, false teachers, and you're not going to be ready to deal with false teachers unless you're growing. (laughs) You might not even recognize the language of a false teacher unless you're growing. So growth is imperative. It's imperative that we protect ourselves against false teaching. And my friends, you do not have to go far to find it. It's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. We will handle some of those issues that are pertinent to the church as we get to chapter 2, such as a denial of hell itself. There are many that are advocating that very doctrine today, that hell does not even exist, that everyone is going to heaven But what does the Bible say? Does it matter what God has said? It's important that we protect ourselves because our enemy, my friends, listen to me, he is seeking to devour people. He is, like Peter says, a roaring lion. And he wants to devour He wants, listen to me, he wants to chase the church away from truth. (laughs) Uh, I didn't know that when I was young. I had no idea that there was even this battle that rages constantly. But as I've grown in my faith in the Lord, that battle is real. Satan is after you if you stand for the truth. 
I was listening to a false teacher uh, just a couple of weeks ago on television. And this false teacher was talking about how you could be a billionaire. And I thought, well, maybe he's going to get to that point of, you know, we are billionaires, right? If we're in Christ, we, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I was waiting on him to say that. And he never did. In fact, he said, listen, if you want to get the whole message that God had given to him, special revelation that God had given to him, then you had to pay twenty nine ninety five to do so. So he can be a billionaire. <laughs> Actually, I couldn't believe I was really, I mean, I, I, I had to pinch myself for like 25 minutes. I barely could stand it. But you know, now listen, there are people out there that are paying twenty nine ninety five, And Peter is dealing with a group of Christians that he doesn't want to see get trapped by false teaching. And so he builds this foundational chapter, is what I call it. Chapter 1 is a foundational chapter. Because you need to know who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and then you need to know how essential it is to grow in order that you would protect yourself. Um, I have a pterygium. Now, if that sounds odd to you, how many of you know what a trigium even is? <laughs> I didn't know either. I was sitting in, in, in the chair at, at my optometrist, and, and, and he's examining my eyes. This has been a few years ago. And, and I was wanting to go from glasses to contacts. I thought that would be a good idea. And he said, that, I can't let you do that because you have a pterygium. And I was like, hey, English, please. He said, you have this sunspot on your eye. Now, if you want to see the sunspot on my eye, you can come line up after church. I'll show it to you. It's in this eye. For $29.95. For $29.95. That was really good. We might ought to pray. But $29.95, right? So this thing, it grows over your eye. And he told me, he said, Dad, um, did you play a lot outside when you were a kid? I said, Absolutely. By the way, just a side commercial. Kids, go outside and play. Anyway, so I said, yeah, I did. Grew up in southwest Louisiana. Played outside all the time. And he said, you know, that's from exposure to the sun. I didn't know that. He said, the best advice I could give you is for your kids and your grandkids, wear sunglasses from a very young age in order to protect their eyes. Now listen to me. In order that we would protect ourselves spiritually we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so Peter urges these believers to grow in the midst of a corrupt culture and world and my goodness it's no different today there are false teachers everywhere I wanted to just kind of set the stage before we get to chapter 1 with this article that was written by a leading theologian and he writes about false teachers in the church today. I just want to read just a couple of paragraphs just to kind of whet your appetite because chapter 2 is coming. He says, The history of Christ's church is inseparable from the history of Satan's attempts to destroy her. All right, Satan does not like individuals coming to Christ. You do know that. 
While difficult challenges have arisen from outside the church, the most dangerous have always been from within. For within arise the false teachers, the peddlers of error who masquerade as teachers of truth. False teachers take on many forms, custom crafted to times, cultures, and context. My friends, listen to me. False teachers know how to bait people. They're very, very good with their words. And there's so much false teaching. And where would you even begin? In a few weeks, we'll talk about some of the leading issues, but where would you even begin? There was a pressure on this um, particular individual. He was interviewed um, about homosexuality. And he said that um, he felt like he had come to a point in time where he was now going to uh, perform same-sex marriages, right? That he would, he would do that. But then I read an article at the end of this week saying he retracted that statement. And so I'm looking at it going, well, at least he retracted the statement. But there is, and I want you to listen to me, there is pressure on pastors and teachers to conform to the culture of the day. It is there. And so for us to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ is so imperative to our growth as believers. Now I want us to pick back up with where we left off in terms of how we are doing and how one grows spiritually. You remember in Second Peter, in the first chapter, Peter talks about their salvation. Let's just read it. I want to just read this part because we haven't read this in a while. Second Peter chapter 1 Verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith, now look at this, of the same kind as ours. There's not a different faith. One for the apostles and one for everyone else. It's one faith. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We've been equipped to live to the glory of God through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these, meaning his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The corruption that is in the world, it's there. It's there today. It was there in Peter's time. We've escaped that because we are new creations in Christ, Peter says. Now for this very reason. And so he begins to talk about the sanctifying process in detail. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And remember these Float, one flows out of another. Supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And that has to do with passions. I probably could have spoke for just one message on that issue of self-control. Because we are living in a culture that's out of control. Um, wow. Um, and then he says, and in your self-control, perseverance... And in your perseverance, and this is where we pick up today, godliness. These last three traits are distinct from the first four. The first four traits deal with uh, personal growth 
as a believer. In other words, they're personal to you. But these last three traits focus on relationships. They're relational. The first one has to do with godliness. So he says, in your perseverance, godliness. You're to supply godliness. Now, it's important to understand then the definition of these. Okay. Thank you. Godliness. Now, this is an interesting term. I've given you notes. They're in your bulletin. Um, The things that I give you here today aren't in your notes. So these are in addition to. Godliness is an interesting term. It describes a reverence or awe that is rightly directed. Right? That last little phrase is very crucial. It's a reverence or an awe that is rightly directed. I'm not sure who the person was that wrote this, but godliness embodies a genuine, heartfelt reverence toward God. How's that looking in our lives? Are we in awe of God? (laughs) Are we in awe of uh, the Creator? Are we in awe of the Sustainer? He's not just the Creator, He's the Sustainer. Are we in awe of that? The very breath that I take right now is because of the grace of God. He is an amazing God. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the provider. He's a lot of different things. Am I in awe of who God is? Um, I want you to go back with me to Exodus in the 15th chapter. And I want to show you a people, the nation of Israel. We, you know, we pick on them a lot. Um, but we're a lot like them. This is generally how this works for people. I won't say you, but for people. They're in awe of God when things are going great. They're not so much in awe of God when things aren't going great. Guess what happened between the, when it was going great and when it was not? God didn't change. <laughs> He's still the same. So whether it's going great in my life, or whether it's not, God is still God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter. So I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death like the psalmist writes, like David writes, and yet what I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they come from me. God doesn't change. The nation of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. In chapter 15 of Exodus, I want you to notice the first three verses with me. And I want you to notice, because this is a song that they sang to the Lord, I want you to notice the emphasis on the Lord. Notice verse 1, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord. They're not singing to each other. They're singing to who? The Lord. You know, I know this might be kind of picky, but sometimes I'm picky. When we come here on Sunday mornings, we're not singing to each other. We're singing to the Lord. You say, with that, I can't sing. Well, neither can I. We just need to make that joyful noise. But we don't want to interrupt the person next to us, right? If you just can't sing, don't, don't, it doesn't need to be too loud. 
my grandmother, I got to tell you, this reminded me, my grandmother, um, my mom's uh, mom and dad, they went to this little Presbyterian church in Russellville, Arkansas. Wow, those people could not sing. I'm not talking about just one. I'm talking about the whole congregation. You know, that twangy sound, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been in those little small country churches and you're like, there is amazing grace because nobody wants to listen to this. I mean, but you know what? With all they had, they were singing to the Lord. And that's what's going on here. Israel singing to the Lord. So when we come on Sunday mornings or we're singing, you know, as we're driving along or whatever it is, we're singing to the Lord. Notice it says, for he is highly exalted. He is. You know, what's wrong with the church today, partly, is that men are being exalted. Men are being exalted. It's the name of the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. Notice verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Are you ashamed of God? Hope not. (laughs) But wow, sometimes we're met with that, right? We're in a restaurant. Do I pray or don't I pray? Do I bow my head or don't I bow my head? We do. Why? Because we reverence God. We're talking to him. It's an opportunity to be a witness. This is my God. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. You see the emphasis in those verses? It's on the Lord. You keep reading this song. It's on the Lord. So godliness has to do with our relationship with the Lord. So then we look and we analyze and we examine and we say, wow, what does that look like in my life? Not on Sunday. What does that look like in my life? This whole issue of godliness every day. See, that's that vertical relationship. And listen, Peter has it in the right order because he's going to go from the vertical relationship to the horizontal relationships. And if the vertical relationship is not correct, this will not be correct. Won't be. So that we don't teach to please men, we teach to please God. We don't sing to please men, we sing to please God. We don't share the gospel to please somebody or to look good. We share the gospel because we are legitimately concerned about that person's soul. Godliness. So Peter says, Supply in your perseverance, godliness. That's that relationship that you and I have with the Lord. What does that look like in our lives? You know, there's a tremendous contrast between what was going on here with the nation of Israel and Moses and what goes on with false teachers. (laughs) It's a stark contrast because... Those who belong to God, now listen to me, those who belong to God want to give glory to God. That should be what's on our minds. We want to give glory to God. Well, false teachers are all about who? They're all about themselves. They're all about the gratification of their flesh. That's what they're about. Peter describes them in this way. Their eyes are full of adultery 
They never cease from sin. Now look at this next phrase, enticing unstable souls. Well, the world is unstable. We would agree with that. But what about you, not you, the one next to you, what about you? Are you unstable or are you stable? Do you know what you believe or are you kind of, uh, I'm not sure. Do you stand with conviction in the fact that abortion is sin? That homosexuality is sin? That adultery is sin? I mean, it's these issues that come up. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ? Those things are being challenged today in seminaries today that once stood on the word of God. I had a conversation with a, a gentleman not too long ago and we were talking together and, and he should have had where he was in his life. He should have had an understanding of eschatology. But he had no idea. And he had been to a Bible college and he had no idea. He didn't know where he stood. I'm not quite sure where I stand. Well, he is coming back. I just wrote a paper distinguishing between the rapture and the second coming. I'm taking this class, uh, a seminary class, at Grace School of Theology. So if you want to study the word deeper, Grace is a great place to go. Um, but I have to take this reading and uh, writing kind of class. It's a prerequisite. And I have to be honest, I, the, the, the professor's wonderful, but the subject stinks. I mean, I could really care less where a semicolon goes. I know there are semicolons. So I'm writing this paper and I'm learning how to write, but we got to choose the subject. And there's a reason I chose the subject of the coming of Christ, because I believe that in the church today, there's not enough distinction in our language between the rapture and second coming. There's a difference. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18 are about the rapture. About the rapture. Now there is the second coming, we're not having a class in eschatology today, but the church is coming with Christ, Revelation 19. And when he comes the second time, he's going to rule from Jerusalem on the throne of David. He's coming to the earth to set up his kingdom, a literal thousand years. And I wondered, as I was writing this paper, if you were to interview a thousand people in the Clay Trustful area that went to good Bible teaching churches, if they would even be able to tell you the difference between the two. And I came to the conclusion that the language I hear from people, I don't think they really do. Is it important? Yeah, it's really important. By the way, you do want the rapture. That's for another time. Enticing, un <laughs> enticing unstable souls. So the question becomes, are we stable? Are we grounded? And are we growing or are we content with the shallow end? 
Hey, guys, I'm going to share my story. When I was growing up as a, a young person, um, I was just kind of content to go to church. And even when I went to Southeastern Bible College back in 1982, I was like, I remember driving up on campus and these guys were sitting around reading their Bible and I'm like, wow, that's different. Because in Southwest Louisiana, there aren't a whole lot of people sitting around reading their Bible. It was different. And you know what happened to me at Southeastern? I went from being a student, right, that was totally focused on academics to growing, growing. It was all, hey, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want from my life? So Peter gives us a contrast between those whose view is godliness and those whose view is not. Well, then he says, look at verse 7, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness... Wow, this is a tough one. Really tough one. For some. Do you know that Peter's already addressed this issue with them once? Go back with me. I just want you to see this. First Peter, so you don't have to turn far. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. I'm not going to put it on the screen. So if you're waiting for it to pop on the screen, well, sorry. First Peter chapter 1 verse 22. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of who? The brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Wow. Okay. I'm ready for the praise team to come back up. Let's play along. Brotherly love. You find that to be easy? Any of you? No takers. It's not easy. I want to share a couple of things with you from the Word. Because the Word addresses this issue. Um, This is the Word that we get. uh, It's phileo. We get Philadelphia from the term, the city of brotherly love. Wow, is that not true? Um... Romans chapter 12. Look at what, what Paul writes. By the way, this is a command to commit. If you're just going to give it a heading, that's what 12a is about. It's a command to commit. He says, be devoted. He doesn't say, if you want to be. He says, be devoted. Commitment. Think about commitment in our culture. We struggle to find people who are committed in the culture to anything. Now think about what Paul's asking these believers to do. Commit to brotherly love. Then you go to Hebrews 13th chapter verse 1. There's an expectation to carry on. This group of people were doing that. But the author of Hebrews says, let love of the brothers or brethren continue. Doesn't need to stop. Needs to be ongoing. I, I know what you're thinking. All right, is there any kind of out clause? I mean, can we leave some folks out of this? Right? Hey, look, let's readily admit, let's be honest. There are some brethren in the body that are easier to love than others. True or false? Say it louder. True. 
for saying that. <laughs> I know what some of you might be thinking, Dad, you're one of them. Hey, look, it's true. It's harder to love some. I like what um, Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, we should practice a sincere love for our brothers and not pretend. Do you know what a sincere love for your brothers involves? Can I just give you some real practical thought here? It involves time. If you're going to extend brotherly kindness to someone, another believer, it involves time. Can't get away from it. Sorry. Time. When I first got in the ministry, people would go to the hospital. I'd be like, well, it's my job to go to the hospital. That wasn't a way to handle that. That's bad thinking. It's my privilege to go and through the help of the Lord minister to a brother or sister in Christ. That's what it is. Privilege. So when I go now, I mean, I just love it. Now, all the visits aren't easy, but I love being with my brothers and sisters. I want to minister to that person. It's not always easy, but it's what God wants. So it involves time, it involves selflessness. Selflessness. You know, it's not about the fact that you go to visit. That's not the issue. It's not about the fact that you take 10 minutes out in the foyer after church. It's about the fact that God has placed you in a situation where he may use you to minister to that person. Because everybody in the foyer is doing great. But the reality is that everybody in the foyer is not doing great. You want to handle this issue of brotherly kindness? Serve that person. Serve that person. Well, there's a weight as it relates to brotherly kindness, brotherly love. Brotherly love is one way to measure spiritual maturity. I want you to go in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Now, this is a real big issue here. There's only one verse, but man, this is a really big deal. Because brotherly love is one way to measure spiritual maturity. I don't get to pick and choose. There are not going to be sections in heaven. The Presbyterians are over here and the Methodists are here. And all us evangelical people, Bible churches, we're all over here. No. You know who's going to be in heaven? Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's who. There were two ladies in the church in Philippi who apparently were not living harmoniously. How would you have liked to have been? I call, listen, I went to the pronunciation place. They're all over the board. So I call these ladies ooh and sin. That's what I call them. So he says, I urge ooh and I urge sin to live in harmony in the Lord. Why? Because they weren't. Why? Why did Paul urge them to live in harmony? 
There's a reason. What's the reason? Class? What's the reason? Testimony? Something else? What's the reason? Huh? God said to. That's a good reason. Because you know one of the biggest issues in the church is unity. They were not in unity. You know what breaks up churches? Disunity. Been there, done that, seen that. You probably have too. Church splits are awful. The Lord did something with us that's amazing. He brought two bodies of people together. And we're living in harmony in the Lord. It's been awesome. But they weren't getting along and it was impacting the body of Christ. And if it wasn't at that point, it could. And so right here in the middle, before he gets to this whole issue of rejoicing, he urges these two women to live in harmony in the Lord. Imagine being those two women. Is this letters being read? You know, you're, you're going through there, the letter's being read. Man, it's great and wonderful and great. I mean, this is who we are in Christ, and this is the, the command to grow and all this stuff. And then, oh my goodness. I want to give you a challenge. I want to challenge you to expand your horizons. I want you to pick out three individuals between now and the end of the year. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you pray about that. Lord, who in the body of Christ am I having a difficult time extending brotherly kindness, love to? Help me to do that. Now, if you're going to pray about that, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's the challenge. We have half a year left. Although, do you know yesterday I was driving and, and I was flipping the stations and, and there was Christmas music on. And, and I was like, okay, hold on a second. It's not December. It's July. And this radio station, of which I will not name, in Birmingham is playing Christmas music. So guys, it's not December. You still have half a year. There's the challenge. Lord, help me to, with your help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, help me to show brotherly kindness to this person, this person, and this person. I want to tell you something. They don't even have to be within these walls because the body of Christ is beyond these walls. And a lot of the reason there are a lot of different churches is because living in harmony in the Lord wasn't happening. So it's imperative. It's a measurement. 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21 say, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Can I just tell you, I was sharing with a couple of guys before church today. Man, this is one of the hardest ones there is. Brotherly kindness. Because we can't pick and choose. So he says, 
in your perseverance, supply godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness. And then the last one that we'll deal with this morning, in your brotherly kindness, love. Some translations have the term charity. It's the term in the original agape. It's agape love. Um, there's two words that I want you to think of when you think of agape love that's biblical, come from the very definition itself. Sacrificial and unconditional. Agape love can be summed up as sacrificial and unconditional. Uh, we all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We love that love verse. But do you know 1 John 3.16 says, we know love by this. This has to do with sacrifice. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. He did. Christ did. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We do not live in a culture where that's required. But there are cultures around the world where that's going on, where people are dying for someone else we know love by this this is sacrificial love and then he the word also has the idea of unconditional love and there's the romans chapter 5 verse 8 i didn't give this to you in your notes romans chapter 5 verse 8 but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us you notice that little phrase while we were yet what sinners while we're yet sinners Christ died for us. You know, one of the things amazing about grace is he wasn't waiting for us to get better. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> we were dead in our sins. And in spite of us being ugly, 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 Christ died for us. Unconditional love. That's what Peter is writing about. In your brotherly love, supply agape love. And agape love is not just in the confines of the church. Agape love here in Second Peter, he's referring not just to those inside the body, but primarily to those outside. You mean I have to love the homosexual? I have to love the adulterer? Yeah. You don't have to love their sin. You don't have to love what they're doing. But one of the greatest ways we demonstrate love, right, is sacrificially and unconditionally. I like what one theologian wrote about this issue of sacrificial love. He says, sacrificial love has transforming power. Genuine love is volitional rather than emotional. The person who truly loves does so because of a decision to love. We think about that in terms of marriage. I mean, listen, I'm not always easy to love. Use your imagination, right? I'm not always easy to love. Teresa's not always easy to love. She's in the nursery, I can say that. She's not always easy to love. But it's a volitional decision that I make to love her. Because it's been a command that God has given me. This person has made a commitment to be loving whether or not the loving feeling is present. And wow, that's our culture today. You know? If I don't feel right about this person, why I'm not going to love them. 
That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about agape love, which is sacrificial and unconditional. This theologian closes his article. He says, true love is not a feeling by which we are overwhelmed. It is a committed, thoughtful decision. So it's a committed, thoughtful decision. While I hate sin, I hate the homosexual sin. I hate adultery. I love that person. And the best way to demonstrate love toward the sinner is share the gospel. Share the gospel with them. Share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. You know, Jesus has some pretty radical language as it relates to love, this whole issue of agape love in the world. Um, There's two verses I just want to share with you briefly. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. (laughs) But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. You see what that calls for there? Action. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. It's radical language. Well, there's another one. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Same scene. Luke says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Well, doing good is what? If you do good to someone, that requires what? Action. My friends, listen to me. The greatest way we can love our enemies or love the world is to share the gospel with them. The greatest way we can love a non-believer is to share the gospel with them. I have this um, bracelet on my wrist. I like wearing this bracelet. Um, how many of you know what this bracelet is? You know what this bracelet is? You, you heard, right, it's the wordless gospel. That's what it is. Um, I had an opportunity this last week to share with two or three people that were not saved, all because I was wearing this. And I thought, I had a crazy thought. I thought, what if our church just committed that we were going to wear these bracelets or wear these necklaces just because it's a good idea, right? Not because it's my idea, because it's, it's a good idea, isn't it? It's certainly a talking point. In fact, do you know that one of those individuals that I had an opportunity to share with because I was wearing this bracelet was my granddaughter, little Abby. She's our oldest granddaughter. She's four years old. And I was wearing the bracelet, and she loves to hug. She's my hugger. And she comes over, and she hugs me. She says, hey, poppies. And she caught, her eyes caught attention to the bracelet. She said, hey, poppies, what's that? And I'm like, I'm telling her. She's four years old, I'm telling her. Saying the black bead, it represents sin. And the Bible says that we all have sinned. Now I want you to listen to me. This little four-year-old girl listened to poppies through the whole presentation of this bracelet. I was amazed. I was like, it's the work of the Lord for sure, right? A four-year-old's attention span's about like that. And I went about five minutes and I explained to little Abby what each bead represented. 
And as I was explaining it to her, I was like, Lord, that's it. That's it. One of the greatest ways to demonstrate love to an unbeliever, to an enemy, to those who despise us is to share the gospel because they need Christ. Because without Christ, they're going to hell for an eternity. Well, Peter says, supply in your perseverance godliness and your godliness brotherly kindness and your brotherly kindness love. D.L. Moody had a family that was attending his church and the family moved to the other side of Chicago and so the parents kept attending or went and found another church. But the little boy, the boy went with his parents and decided it wasn't the place for him. And so this teenage boy rode his bicycle across town. And when asked why by someone, he said, because they love a fella over here. Guys, love does make a difference. It makes a difference. And so we need to demonstrate that we belong to the Lord by loving one another and by loving the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for the instruction. This is impossible, Lord. These things are absolutely impossible to supply in our lives apart from the Holy Spirit of God. We thank you that we have access because of our faith in Christ to godliness, to brotherly kindness, to love, to perseverance, all these other traits. We recognize, Lord, that we live in a culture today that it's really difficult to even keep our minds focused on growth, on spiritual growth. We're bombarded every day with just the burden of time that we have and devotion to so many different things. And I pray, Lord, that we would look at it that as we're living our life, as we're living our life, as we're at our job, as we're play, school, whatever, Lord, help us to just demonstrate these Christ-like characteristics so that the world will ask us the question, hey, what, what's that bracelet around your wrist or that necklace around? What, what, what are those things? Why are you so different? Lord, help us not to stay in the shallow end of the pool. Help us not to be dependent on the bottle. But Lord, help us to want the meat of your word. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of your word, Lord, that that we would have the opportunities to demonstrate that we belong to you. Lord, that in our lives we would stand in awe of you. That in our lives we would demonstrate brotherly kindness and and Lord, that you would stretch us in that area. And that, Lord, um, you would help us, as, as you told your disciples, um, that you would help us to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. And, Lord, the greatest way that we can demonstrate our love to any one of these groups 
is to share the gospel. So help us to be plugged in. Help us to understand just how important it is to mature and grow. We don't want to be tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine. But we want to remain grounded in your word. Help us to grow in these traits with the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.